I don't know that money is at the top of the list as the most important thing. It's the things that money affords us, getting back our time and spending that time probably in community. I always give the example of somebody saying, yeah, I need to get, you know, three or $4 million or $5 million. And I'm like, for what? So I can retire early. Okay, retire early because of why? Oh, I don't like my job. Well, why don't you like your job? You know, if you ask why enough, then you get down to like, well, I have to work so long that I never get to spend time with my kids. Boom. So there we are. Okay, so really what we need to do is not necessarily get you four or five million dollars. We really need to figure out how we can allow your plan to let you spend more time with your kids. Then we don't have to wait 20 or 30 years either for the payoff. We can actually start building some of those things into your plan now so that, God forbid, you're not here tomorrow. You got those great memories uh, because you've been living in the now. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-word Podcast. I am pleased you are here for another week with another fascinating conversation with Dominique Henderson. Before we get into this conversation with Dominique, I have a favor for you that I ask all the time, and I would love it if you did. Just that. And what is that? Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. The reviews help to get great guests on the show. We're approaching almost 100 episodes, and it's been an absolute delight. Also, if you're interested, the Financial Therapy Association is having their annual conference from October 5th to 8th in Denver, Colorado. It is a wonderful, wonderful conference that I highly recommend you would attend. All right, so Dominique. Dominique is an engaging, energetic, and charismatic individual. I really had a great time chatting with Dominique. His personal mission statement is real financial advice has the ability to change family trees and everyone deserves the opportunity to have their family tree changed. Professionally, Dominique has spent over two decades in the financial services industry building a diverse set of different skills from communication to portfolio management and so on. From a technical standpoint, he's co-managed client portfolios of nearly $500 million and has experience investing in real estate. Now, as a two-time founder, Dominic spends his time helping both consumers and providers of financial services. His venture, DJ Capital Management, focuses on helping clients make the bigger, better decisions with their money, while the Jumpstart Coaching Lab educates and coaches the next generation of financial professions to serve the growing group who are seeking real, that's Dominic's version, which I love, real financial advice. And Dominic is an author of Assess, Address, and Adjust, a practical guide to becoming unstuck and achieving your goals. This conversation really spoke to me because we talked a lot about the value of being unstuck. We looked below the numbers. We didn't focus just on how to manage a portfolio or the technical side of financial planning. Rather, we looked at how do we use money, perhaps, as a way to learn more about ourselves, 
so that we can get unstuck as we work towards achieving our authentic goals. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dominique Henderson. Dominique, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Sean. I'm glad to be here, man. I am excited to have our conversation. We had a pre-call and I felt your energy through the camera all the way from the United States into Canada. And I feel it again this morning. So I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully we can make up for the fact that your your hockey team uh, <laughs> is no longer in the Stanley Cup final playoff stuff. So yeah, <laughs> I need a little extra energy this morning. I'll try to give it to you, my friend. Okay. My son was saying, Dad, it's just not fair. They were winning. It's like, well, that's sports. Well, w- with that in mind, some of this conversation that we're going to be having is around your new book, which has come out. Yes. Assess, Address, and Adjust, which we're going to get into. Yeah. Maybe some of these Edmonton Oilers might have to read this book to get unstuck so they can get to the Stanley Cup Finals next year. So I will make my recommendation to their team. I don't know that I covered too much of what they may be interested in, but maybe, maybe, you never know. You yeah, never they're know. stuck. So, <laughs> Dominique, when I look at your bio and your background, I see you have a depth of knowledge in the field of financial planning. I see that you've worked in different areas in financial planning, and now you're evolving and we're going to get to jumpstart in these wonderful initiatives you're doing and an author. But I want to go way back to the 90s when you became a financial planner. So that's quite some time ago. And I would assume that your story, your life story has evolved since then, back in the 90s when you became an advisor. When you look back and observe your journey... Can you put yourself back to that younger Dominique in the 90s and kind of share with us why you feel like he decided to become a financial planner at that time? And with the knowledge you've gained over the last 20 years, do you think you see a different reason why he became a financial planner than he thought in the 90s? Yeah, absolutely. This is a great question. It's a familiar question, but different from a different perspective because I I like the last part of your question, which is, based on my journey, best based on the evolution of Domini, was what I intended to accomplish or my original goal for getting into the industry the same as I see it now, which I think is a is a really good reflective point and probably a question that all of us as servants of this industry need to ask ourselves. So no, I appreciate it. So just contextually for those that are listening and people that follow me on, on my platform, they know I've kind of embraced this term career changer, because essentially that's what I was, right? So if we go back to 1994, when I entered college, I graduated in 1998, May 98. And by September 98, I was working for a hedge fund in Dallas that managed people's money. So yeah, naturally financial services. But really those first eight years was spent, a lot of those years, in operations, data analysis, statistical analysis, um, support roles, is what we call mid-office roles, between the front office and the back office. So I I did a lot of that stuff. But while I was doing that, I learned a lot about financial services. I learned a lot about wealth management. I learned a lot about stock markets. I learned a lot about derivatives. I learned a lot about just this industry. That excited me because that's what I wanted. When I thought about this particular career, and you can ask my mom, I was literally one of those kids that walked around the house 
in my dad's suit coat and tie with shorts and walking around with a briefcase. So there was <laughs> something to be said about where I got that image, you know, like long, what I would call Monopoly tournaments with one of my cousins who's more like a brother. I mean, literally, we used to play Monopoly for days on end. And I'm not talking about stop the game. I'm talking about on and on and on. And so much so, we ran, the bank ran out of money. And we had to make our own money because we were still going like, you know, that type of thing. So this, let's call it desire of wanting to understand about money, be around it, work in a field close to it, all this other kind of stuff was where I, I stepped foot into that hedge fund in September 1998. And so I think looking back now, though, what I've realized, and we can talk a little bit more about the journey, but what I realized now, Sean, looking back is that this industry is all about serving others. Most industries are, but I think in particular, this one gets a pretty bad rap because of how much people that quote unquote serve each other. For those of people that are not looking at us, I'm, I'm doing air quotes around serve. They tend to make or can make a lot of money and they may not give back and or serve as much as the money they make. And I think that's what gives this industry somewhat of a bad reputation. There's a tendency to extract more rents than what is necessary. But with all that said, I still look back and I look at this industry as a point of service. It's a way for me to help someone come alongside of them and help deliver on a desire that they have around their finances, very much as a steward. So that's the way I look at it now. And hopefully I have a, a more holistic view around that. Thank you. Multiple areas there with your, your answer. And I want to get to this service mentality that I really feel like just by the individual who introduced me to you, that I understand that you embody this servant mentality and just by what I see online. But first, Marathon Monopoly games. I'm interested about this. And you wearing your dad's suit coat and briefcase. As a child, we all adopt these relationships with money or these unconscious beliefs around money. What, yeah. what do you think little Dominique's relationship with money during that time was as he marathoned Monopoly games? <laughs> What's weird about this, Sean, is I've had to do my own work on my beliefs around money, which have not always been rosy and positive just to be completely transparent. But I have particular glue around this. So somewhere between fourth and seventh grade, I know that we were stationed in Michigan. My dad was the U.S. Army. I can't remember what summer was, but it was a summer that we visited Texas, where we're from, where my family's from. And we brought my older cousin back up to Michigan with us. And so that's when I have glue around this. I have glue around you know, how we were playing businessmen and we would play Monopoly and stuff like this. So this is somewhere between, you know, I'm nine and 14 years old, something like that. And what I do remember is, and this may be unique to some people when they're kind of evaluating their money stories, a lot of my money story was self-discovered because we didn't talk about money at my dinner table or my family. You know, I, I saw a little... You know, it was kind of like I still grew up with parents that raised me that children are to be, you know, seen and not heard. So we didn't really talk about some of the more taboo things like sex and money in a household open. 
And so a lot of what I learned about money came from self-discovery through TV, through friends, through books I read, through all that kind of stuff, right? So that's that's my glue around that particular situation and even my money story period, which coincidentally or not, is things that I had to kind of work through because I strongly believe in the, the fact of community and that, you know, a lot of great things happen in community. So even my impressions of money or anything else that's significant in my life, those need to be articulated like iron sharpens iron between two people, right? There's only so much, there's a movie and I, I hate to trail on here, but hopefully I'm, I'm, I'm expanding on the thought. So there's a movie, Goodwill Hunting, and then Robin Williams says to Matt Damon in that movie, that who are your friends? And he was like, Nietzsche, and he names all these authors. He's like, they're all dead. He's like, dude, who are the people that are alive right now that challenge you? And so I think money's like that too. So my self-discovery was incomplete, is my point. I needed other things, other people specifically to, hey, what you're thinking about money, that's not all right right there. You know, you might need to tweak that or, you know, things like that. And so I think I had, to answer your question, I had self-discovery, excuse me, as my initiation of those thoughts, but they had to be refined. You know, I just call it through the crucible of relationship and community. Mm. You have this personal self-discovery and now you work as a financial planner or I can assume others are attempting to have a personal self-discovery or stuck uh, and not knowing where to go to leverage, to use your words, community or others. What would you say to people listening? Because as we, as we know, we all have these money stories and I'm not sure if anyone got it right from the get-go. <laughs> Very few of us. Very few. I mean, you, you, you look at it's not our fault. Evolutionary speaking, we weren't made to handle money. They were called hoarders if you saved, and they would be shunned from the tribe. So we all have this complex relationship with money. Based on your own experience and working with several families over the years, what would you say to people who want to start discovering a bit of this story and your experience with leveraging community? Because I really like that aspect. I mean, go back to the, the evolutionary perspective. Our ancestors thrived on communities. So what would you say to people on how to leverage their community? There's a unique principle in, you, in community that I think pretty much permeates every principle topic that you're surrounding or building community around, whether that's relationships or career or money like we're talking about, or even sex or any of those topics. What community does, what community forces, if you do it the right way and you're going to get the benefits of it, let's say it that way, is transparency. And I think you can't hide in community. It's very hard to do that. If we were gather hunter-gatherers, you know, thousands of years ago, and, you know, I killed a little rabbit and we were all supposed to share that rabbit. And if I was trying to hide out in the corner, the next thing you probably do, Sean, would be like, what are you doing over in the corner, Dominique? What do, you, what do you have behind your back? You know, so community forces transparency. And I think that's the beauty of community. Now, let's segue to the topic of money. When you're in community, and this could be, let's, do, let's loosely define community as more than yourself. Because you get outside perspective, which is one of the tenets of community. We can get into community a little bit later. later. But the point is, um, when I have a financial advisor, financial coach, financial professional come into my life, start going through my bank statements. I call it getting financially naked, financially undressed. I'm having to be transparent about the fact that I say, oh, yeah, 
All these things on this side are super important to me. This is the reason why. But then it doesn't translate when my financial professional looks at my bank statements. So I can give them license to then kind of ask me a really hard question like, hey, Dominic, you said that this was really important, but your spending doesn't align with that. So what are you noticing when you spend this particular way versus that particular way that you told me you wanted to? So those are some simple, I think, ideas around community when you apply it to anything, including money and finances that um, could be extremely powerful. I really appreciate this community perspective. And when you use the word transparency, it just made a lot of sense to me where it, like synonymous almost in this way for vulnerability. And in a world of finances where we just hide, 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 that transparency and vulnerability with our community who are probably battling with the same complexities we are navigating this relationship with money is is a powerful powerful thing so thank you for sharing that well let me let me let me just interject something right so yeah. you've probably you've been in this business long enough where you've probably had a couple come to you for financial planning for financial advice and i'm not throwing your stones i live in a glass house but the observation is the following one comes to you and then they have secrets from the other one but they're wanting you to kind of be this mediator with holding their secrets, which I'll tell you long-term just does not work. First of all, you can't build a marriage because that's built on trust, holding secrets. Now, I'm not talking about secrets like I have my own bank account, she has her own bank account. I'm talking about secrets like I have my own bank account, she has her own bank account, but she doesn't know what I spend in my own bank account and there's no accountability between the two. And yet and still, I lie to her or I hide from her or I, I don't tell the whole truth about how money comes and goes in account. That's a problem. That's a problem. You can hire as many financial advisors as you want, but unless you <laughs> fix the trust issue in your relationship, it's, it's going to not go anywhere. So that's the reason why I say even beyond or even before you bring a financial professional in, community fosters or should foster transparency. That's the only way we're going to get anywhere. And it's really hard. And this is where I was kind of bringing you in as a financial professional to take people on a journey to help them fulfill their goals and their desires and their dreams and all this other kind of stuff that they, 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 they deem as success with them holding those secrets. It defeats the purpose. I don't see how we build a plan around that. And you know, when, when, when that scenario you describe encounters an advisor like yourself, going back to the top, when you talk about the servant mentality and service Coupled with something that you said that was really insightful, I thought, when you get them financially naked and you look at their spending and they might not be spending on things they have value, I wrote down what you said. You didn't induce them with shame by like, look what you're doing. You said, what are you noticing? Which I thought was really, really a kind and compassionate way of helping facilitate this conversation that almost says to them, I trust you, I see you, which I think is a powerful thing advisors can do because most clients, I don't think, expect that experience when they come see see us. And so I just want to, I guess, acknowledge that I really appreciate that process that you have and just seeing the person for who they are. And I think that gives that trust and permission for them to be transparent. Yeah, I mean, empathy is a big part of this job, Sean. I think far too long has our industry harped on things are this not super important. I mean, so this has been 20 years in the game. I've managed a lot of money and seen a lot of plans. And I will tell you with extreme confidence that most of the people that do this right, when I say do this right, save and invest along the way, there's a high probability. And I'm going to put it in probably like the 85 percentile 
percentile that they're not going to spend everything that they say. They have more than enough to like pass down and gift on. So that's to say, I don't know that what the industry has us focusing on, has us studying about, has us getting degrees on and designations about is the most important thing. Typically, what I've found when you ask why enough time, which you have to have a level of empathy there. And, and I advocate for advisors. If you don't have your own advisor or don't get one, you need to do the work yourself. Create a financial plan yourself. Go through the process. Know what it's like to sit in the client's position and answer some of those tough questions. Because more than likely, I don't know that money is at the top of the list as the most important thing. It's the things that money affords us, getting back our time and spending that time probably in community. I always give the example of somebody saying, yeah, I need to get, you know, three or four million dollars or five million dollars. And I'm like, for what? So I can retire early. Okay, retire early because of why? I don't like my job. Well, why don't you like your job? You know, if you ask why enough, then you get down to like, well, I have to work so long that I never get to spend time with my kids. Boom. So there we are. Okay, so really what we need to do is not necessarily get you four or five million dollars. We really need to figure out how we can allow your plan to let you spend more time with your kids. Then we don't have to wait 20 or 30 years either for the payoff (laughs) or however long it takes you to take to save your nest egg. We can actually start building some of those things into your plan now so that, God forbid, you're not here tomorrow. You got those great memories because you've been living in the now. Oh, yeah. So many times you go in that situation and they'll be like, all right, let's plan. $3 $3 million. Let's not ask those whys. Yeah. Dominique, I have so many areas I want to go in on that one, but I'm, I'm I want to. I'm giving you rapid trails like my, uh, oh, I guess, Disney, so. <laughs> I feel like we could spend the rest on that, but I want to talk about this book. Okay. So when you talk on time, let, let's segue from time. It's our finite resource. I mean, perhaps our time could be one of our biggest assets on our net worth statement that we don't put on there. Our lives seem to get consumed by many things, especially when we're not clear on what we want. Like this example that you shared when you asked why, why, why they want to spend some time with their kids. So when we don't ask these important questions, we come sometimes just go through the, the, the routine of life and hopefully retire at 65 and be like, wait, it wasn't the money I want. It was time and it's gone now. So what I'm getting at is without guiding principles or you want to call them quotes or visions or what you use in your book, your own philosophies, sometimes we can be lost at sea, so to speak. I pulled out your philosophy from your book and I'd like to read it and then get your your comments on the depth of what that means to you. Yes, absolutely. Let's do it. Results emanate from what I do, which is shaped by how to think. This ultimately means that I possess more control over my end results than what popular culture suggests. Therefore, I have the power to allow entry or exit of certain thoughts into my mind. Can you give us the the meaning behind that more than what we can just hear from the words? This goes back. I'm going to try to do this in, in less than three or four minutes. So I took a kind of like a professional development journey several years ago with my church called Gates of Influence. And I had been gelling some ideas about what I'm about to share, but it hadn't crystallized until I finished this class, which was, I think, about nine months or something like that. I can't remember exactly now. And what I came up with is the triangle that really explains this, but I can spend hours on this, this, this triangle. But essentially, 
we have shaping experiences in our life, right? So let me use some really extreme examples so people can crystallize this is if you go to a financial advisor and they steal your money, that is a shaping experience that you view now the financial services industry and financial advisors in particular a certain way. I cannot invalidate that experience for you and say that because I'm this way, you have the wrong idea about the industry. They very well may be, but there needs to be a changing of the mindset because shaping experiences are real things that I cannot invalidate, right? And that goes for anything in your life. But our shaping experiences give us a mindset. It gives us how we're thinking about a particular thing, which is basically our brain's operating system. From your mindset is essentially what I call your deliberate practice. It's how you think, how you behave, how you act, what you decide to do, it is you, what you continually do over and over and over. And so when I sit down with clients and talk about this, I go, if we want to look at our results, we actually should take a couple steps back, talk about the shaping experiences and the mindset that it's given us because those repeated behaviors have given us the results. Like sometimes we're looking at the results and we need to look a couple of steps backward because if my results are giving me freedom or giving me bondage, it's from what I've been doing, right? In order to live in this, you know, I guess more holistic view where you have impact and legacy, you have to be doing the things that are going to give you freedom versus give you bondage. So all that to say, results, which everybody focuses on getting the right ones, is a product of how I think, act, and behave, which is a product of my mindset. And so what the key is here for anybody listening is I can change my mindset without Sean's help, without anybody. Really, all I have to look at is in Dominique. That's all I have to look at is me and what, what has happened in my life, what is currently happening, what do I want to happen? And so I'm a big believer that mindset dictates a lot of things. Now, I know there's some other you know, things to weave in there, and I'm open to you know, you know, talking about those in perspective, but... I really strongly believe that if if you're in a situation right now where you feel stuck, let's just say your job, you feel sucks because everybody is getting promoted ahead of you. You have the same skills as them. I would challenge you to say you're probably thinking about this the wrong way. Everybody can't be getting promoted over you if they are exactly the same as you. That is impossible. If you went to go interview all the people promoted over you in the last six months, and just line out the resumes side by side, I'm pretty sure you'll find some things that they have that you don't have. And adopting that type of perspective versus the victim perspective, which is everything is against me and I can't get ahead right now, shaping your mindset to, to kind of look about yourself and where can you start, I think we have more control over that. And that can change our outcome a lot better and get us the results that we want. I appreciate how really of two or many important elements, but from what I heard is, when you first talk, talked about the shaping experiences and then adopting that positive mindset of looking towards, hey, I can accomplish this. And I bring that up because I've heard people talk about think positive, be positive, and positive things will happen. While there could be some merit in there, I think it's so beneficial to look back at the shaping, to use your words, the shaping experiences that are causing how we think, feel, and then act. Yes. Without going back, I think it's difficult to just change the behavior where we get some of that insight. But what I also like about your, your, your comment is you don't just say, look at the shaping experiences and sit with it. It's like, okay, now I understand. Let, let's look for how can I get more control with my positive mindset? So what was a memorable shaping experience for you that 
perhaps, if anything at all, put you on this journey to become an author? I think I've always had words in me. I tend to be a little loquacious at times. So I don't think that was the real part. But as you know, it's different to have thoughts in your head and then articulate them to paper, just as it is to have thoughts in your head and to speak. You know, So these are just different platforms, different mediums. Authorship, I think, has always been one of the things I, I hate to use this term because it, it kind of makes it a little cavalier or whatnot. Because I, I do deem all what I do a privilege and, and that I am in servanthood. But I did kind of want to check this box, if you will. But what really came about with this particular work is that the pandemic, I think, has ushered in this feeling that a lot of people were, they had it. It's almost like, you know, some things, you know, they say that like the shingles virus comes from chicken pox and it's dormant in your body. So if you've had chicken pox, you could have shingles. I think what the pandemic did was it, it was something that allowed us to see things in our lives from a different perspective that was already there. For instance, the same person that wants to be elevated on their job, wants a career change. Let's use my example and jumpstart. There are people that see themselves in financial services, love financial services, talk to their plans, their friends about this all the time, but they're too afraid to leave what they're doing now for various reasons and go into what they know without a shadow of a doubt they were called to do, right? That's a scary thing. That's a very scary leap. But then the pandemic comes along and they go, geez, Louise, man, you know, I'm driving this job every day or they call me back to work when I, I've been more efficient at home. Like all these different things that have just gotten to think like, why am I working at this job? Like, I don't have to, like I, ha I can really choose to do something else. And so I start having these conversations like that and others and I go, man, people are really, quote unquote, stuck on comfort, ease. A lot of these things that I think our, our current culture or popular culture lulls us into thinking that is okay to, to be. And therefore, they're not living out what they were called to do. See, I'm a big proponent that, Sean, you were put on earth to do what you were doing, designed to do. No one else can do it. And if you don't do it, there's going to be a vacuum. Like, I strongly believe that just like I strongly believe in my call and purpose. So I kind of feel that the 50 or 100 families that I'm called to right now are not the same as yours. And therefore, if you didn't come into financial services, those 50 or 100 families that you serve would not have a Sean. And that's important for them to have a Sean, just like it's important for my families to have a Dominique. So when people don't walk in what they're supposed to walk in purpose-wise and calling-wise because they're stuck, I felt I needed to write something to help people get unstuck because this is the stuff, the same stuff that I've used. I talk about how I was stuck, right? I was in financial services doing quote unquote my G drop, making, you know, decent money, but I didn't feel fulfilled. I was like, there's more to life than this, right? Like, I mean, I just come in, answer phones, talk people off the ledge about the markets and then go back home and do it again. Like that, that didn't seem like that was what I was supposed to do. So that's why authorship, it's one of the ways, you know, I could go live and I love video. But this is the way to kind of put it down and, and like have it there for posterity and be able to give it out to people and stuff like that. With your journey, you're in financial services, you're feeling stuck. What was your COVID, so to speak, that allowed you to, which I really liked what you said, see things in ourselves that was already there? It sounds like you made the shift before COVID or maybe maybe not. No, I did. I did. did? Okay. My wife, you know, when we have a good relationship with our spouse, they can see things in us that uh, we may be blind to ourselves, right? You know, there's several commercials about being nose blind. 
<laughs> you know, the smelly speaker, sneakers and stuff like that. So I was kind of like emotionally blind to some things that were reoccurring in my life, some themes about, you know, just how I continue to strive. And I'm, I've always been a really driven person and, you know, you know, list oriented and stuff like that. But there comes this point where you, where I started to transcend and realize that I wasn't put here to be a human doing. I was here to be a human being. My wife just said that to me last night. That was Oh, really? <laughs> okay. Okay. We're going to have to obviously connect on that later. But the point is, what I had to start identifying all the things in my life that were on that doing list versus being list. And man, you know, th- there were some difficult choices. It, I'm, I'm sensitive to people that are like, man, I got a pay cut. I'm like, I understand. I understand that. It's like, man, but I got kids that I got to put in college. I understand. I understand that. <laughs> you know, I get it. But I don't know how many days I have. Prime. I'll, I'll use this example. So I have three adult children right now. And I remember several Christmases ago, I saw a movie and I was like, man, it'd be really nice to do with my kids. And I wanted to basically create a legacy of audio that they could listen to that was me speaking into them and da da da, you know, all this other kind of stuff. But I was like, man, it takes a little while to do that. I'm a pretty busy dude. I have to do that for, you know, times three children. Like, like how much audio? Like, I need to write this out there. I start thinking about all this stuff. And the point is, is three years later, I still hadn't done it. And then this year, it just hit me. It was like, dude, just send them a quick audio message, you know, several times a week. Just do it that way. And that's what I did. So I say that to say, sometimes we make things too complex. Like, we're, we're wanting to do it a certain way. And I think that's the whole doing list. It just, it attached itself to that same list of stuff about being, you know, doing instead of just like in the moment, pick up the phone, leave my daughter a quick message about how I love her, how I want her to have a great day, how she's, you know, the best thing in the world and, and then keep it moving on, go on to the next thing. I think we have to be more intentional about the moments in our lives. And that's essentially what this book is about is being intentional about the time that you have the skill stack that you've been allocated right now. And what are you going to do about it? What are you going to be about? You're going to complain about your situation or are you going to unstuck yourself? Thank you for sharing that. And um, as a father of two, I think that myself, what a gift, the voice memos. It makes me think of, I had pulled out a quote that you, I believe it was from your book or online. It said, I'd rather be honest than perfect. And it seems like these voice memos, you know, you're, you're practicing that. You'd rather just be honest in the moment, weekly thing than being perfect. And uh, I'm sure they'll appreciate that. Yeah, it's one of those things, Sean, I think I want to, if I have the opportunity, and it's not like a tragic ending or something like that, and I have the opportunity to kind of reflect on my life before I pass, my goal is to have zero regrets on that side of the ledger, like zero. Like it's kind of the notion I, I used to play sports and run track and stuff like that. It's the notion of leaving it all on the field or leaving it all on the court, whatever sport you play. And I think that's important. Uh, you just empty it all out. There's not many, you know this, you, know, you can't take it with you. The important thing is the legacy that you leave behind. And you've probably seen it. You've seen estate plans kind of gone awry. The grantor expects all these particular things to happen after they pass just because it's in their will. And you know, family acts how family acts. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But the grand tour is no longer around to to say what's going to happen. So I guess all that to say, how important is that really? I don't know that it's really that important. Uh, maybe spending time in those relationships versus leaving people money 
would impress upon them more of your intentions than the money you left. They just want your attention, hey? Now, because you can spend 40 hours a week trying to build that estate that might work out. I mean, not just we got to you know work to make money. But what I mean by that is distracting ourselves with this belief that I'm doing it for the future. Yeah. When the future is a gift if it comes, but we only have the here and now. Yeah, I agree. In your book, I really like how it's structured in a very structured format with the three pillars. Let's go into the three pillars and why you chose those. And I just want to make a comment that I appreciate Again, I feel like at least my mind goes to guiding principles are to some degree rules of thumb that helps guide us, sets like limitations. But three, it's nice because it's manageable. It's not 10. Sometimes it gets overwhelming. So let's go into the three pillars of what they are and the significance of each one. This came to me actually pretty recently as I'm, you know, I have a lot of different frameworks, some of which I share in the book. And I've read a lot of different things about how people do things. But what I've kind of gathered and not to be really crass or cursed because now I'm a, I'm a, I'm an author, but a lot of things in books are things that we've heard or people have talked about before, but we just need a particular perspective and, you know, some, some illumination. And this happens through how you're just traversing through life most of the time to be like, ah, yeah, I got it. Okay. Yeah. Like that. So I just wanted to kind of add, you know, my flavor on some things that I think have been talked about before, but perspective is huge. You know, talked with Andy Andrews about this, one of my favorite authors. He has several books on this, but The Traveler's Gift is one of them, Little Things. I think perspective is one of the biggest things that we screw up. It's the difference between somebody saying something and you getting offended or you taking it a different way and not letting it offend you. And again, this goes back to things that you can control, not you know, you passing this off on somebody and trying to be the victim about things. So nowhere in my book am I allowing you to be the victim. If you like to be the victim, then I don't think you should read this book because you're going to get very offended. (laughs) But um, the perspective determines how you view things. So I can have a very, very positive glass half full view, or I can have a very negative, woe is me, glass half empty view. It's up to me. So that's that's pillar number one. <laughs> if you don't get that right, it probably blows up everything else. The program is all about, I kind of look at this as like software. It, it's more of the mindset and how you're going to run things, right? So I use the example of, you know, really I kind of, because this is written with the career changer in mind. So we're talking about things like human capital and financial capital and, and all this different kind of stuff. And you know, a lot of people want the financial capital, but, you know, human capital is a determinant of financial capital. So your skills, like what you bring to the table, how you impact the company's bottom line really is reflected in how you get paid. So if you change that mix and make it better, it follows that you should get more financial capital. So that, you know, how we run things is really how we spend our time investing in ourselves. You can't really expect, unless you want to be an expert in social media, to spend like hours and hours on your Facebook feed and, and Instagram and, and then think that, you know, money is just going to manifest in your bank account. This, is, this doesn't work that way. And then last but not least, your process is once you've got that perspective in that program, okay, so like what are the things that you're going to bite-size do to make those things happen? Now, uh, some people use lists, some people use planners, some people use their calendar. You know, I use a combination of things, but I, I think this how you do things like how you show up, like, do you show up to meetings late? 
but you're expecting everybody else to be on time in life. Like that process kind of weaves into a lot of different things, but essentially it is kind of like the oil that greases the engine. You can have this Maserati, Bentley, whatever engine, greatest engine on earth, but don't do any oil changes and see how long that lasts. That's how your program will break down if you don't have a really good process. So that's how the pillars kind of work together and, and, and interchange. I like how you have this like system, if you go into system thinking of, because uh, we're all perfectly designed outcomes of the system that we operate in. And if we have this totally unconscious, dysfunctional, not dysfunctional, but disorganized system, well, maybe that's the reason why we're not getting results. So when I was going through this, I was like, ah, this is a really good way to design our system. And I liked the first part about perspective. And I did catch the victim in, in the book, very specific in the book about the victim mentality. And I think what I really felt reading that is you're giving people permission to have agency or like their like self agency to be like, okay, you know, the guy down the street's not going to help me design this life. I got to, I got to try. I love the word agency. This is a word that we don't use a lot in our common vernacular, but agency is a, is a perfect way to articulate what I'm trying to say, because I think we are the own saboteurs of our, our success in a lot of ways, because we just don't take ownership for our results. We want to blame people. We want to say that it's his fault or her fault or the, the, the man's fault. You know, as an African-American male in 2022, I definitely have contemporaries and, and, and at times I can, I can definitely go there, but I have to go back and look and like, really, is this a racism issue or is this something different? Right. Or am I importing somebody else's guilt? You know? So there's, there's a lot of different things that we can go. It's not totally the scope of this podcast, but I think the, the underlying truth here is that before you look outside yourself to blame, look inside, see what you can fix first. And if you've done all the fixing possible, which is never going to happen, but let's just say hypothetically, you do all the fixing possible and things are still wrong. Then you can blame somebody. You have my permission. <laughs> you know, I feel like we could do a whole, uh, I would like to pick your brain a whole episode on, on victim because I, I did really get that sentiment. And, and I think I hear you saying like, you know, there, there external things do happen that aren't fair. No ands, if or buts, they're not fair. But what I hear, hear you say is inside, you can control a bit of the narrative. Yeah, I don't, in, in two, Sean, just to say this, it, at least my belief is, I don't know that most things in life are fair. Like, let's just mm -hmm. be honest. I don't, I don't think most things are fair. If, if everything was fair, I would have Bill Gates' investment intellect. I would have Donald Trump's real estate acumen. I would have LeBron James' genes. I would have Michael Jackson. Let me just give you all the people that I admire, I guess. Michael Jackson's coordination and stuff. Come on now. We are fortunate if we can do one or two things in life over a lifetime really well. And if you listen to people like Seth Godin, what they'll tell you is that the reason why he was able to write so many best-selling books in authorship is you don't notice that on his Twitter account, he does a daily post every day and has been doing for the last 15 years plus. Like, so it's the little disciplines over time that allow you to be then noticed about something for a particular contribution or something that you've made. That's how things go. If you want to call that fair, I guess if you want to slap a label on it, to me, that just sounds like hard work. It makes me think back to what you were saying about we each have our own unique power and or not power, but ability to serve. And if if someone's not doing that, then no one will. And why I bring that up is because 
everyone has these different skill sets and different reasons of being. And it would be a strange world if we were all as tall as LeBron James and is physically fit. And uh, I I can't tell if my Zoom camera is correct, but is that is there purple on your plaid on your shirt? Or is that oh yeah, kind of purple bluish. So you got the Seth Godin purple cow going on. Do you, I don't know if you're fr- <laughs> I do, I do, I guess. Great observation. <laughs> so uh, as we come to an end here, I want to respect our time. If the internet is correct, which a lot of times the internet is not correct, but I saw something on May 19th about yourself right before, from what I understand, you're going on a holiday for a 25th anniversary to Kauai. On May 19th, maybe this was the right day, I don't know, but it could have been a significant day for you and your personal journey, as I believe you received a first batch of your new book into your home office and you were going to do some signings. I don't know if that was the first time you've seen the book, but let's pretend it was the first time. Okay. Can you explain the significance in the moment of your life's journey when that physical copy of all that hard work, all the years of your experience came to fruition in this physical, beautiful thing called a book? That was a very authentic moment. I just had my wife video it because I wanted to experience it with the readers. I don't know, man. You know, it's one of those things where... Later in my years, and as I've gone through this kind of evolution, I think I was able to appreciate a lot more than if I would have done it earlier. Let me give you a contrast. Because a lot of people say this, and I've been guilty of saying it before, is, man, I wish I would have, insert, you know, whatever. And I said that a lot about when my kids were growing up. But as they've gotten to be adults, I've developed relationships with them. I just called them out the blue. I said, hey, let's go do lunch. Let's go do all this kind of stuff. Because I don't want to be like one of those parents that said, I wish I would have. So... With this, and my wife is, you know, front and center on helping me realize to be in the moment and, and to see that, you know, hard work, mistakes. I'm pretty sure there's some editing. Matter of fact, my wife was reading it. She was like, yeah, you were this part right here. I was like, okay, second edition, third edition. But um, the point being is that that moment right there was all about, wow, man, you know, this is something that I put my mind to. I have a mastermind that helped me. Sandra's part of that. To, to stick to that goal. And now we're done. And now starts this new journey of letting people know about some of the things that could help them in their lives through this. So I'm super, super excited. You know, it's just, you know, we build it, we're, we're building it brick by brick, right? And that was one brick. Thanks for sharing that. So my final question is, you alluded to at the end of life, you don't want to have anything on your, the one side of your ledger of the regrets. So let's go to end of life. Imagine you're somewhere that brings you comfort, peace, wherever that is in the world. And you're sitting on this front porch, looking out at a lake, mountain, a meadow, a city, doesn't matter, whatever brings you peace. And you're writing a letter to your children or your children's children about what you learned on having a healthy relationship with money. What would be a theme to that letter? I think the, the first thing I would tell them is money is no good without a very, very, very important why. So we're going to use some Napoleon Hill's thoughts in Thinking Grow Rich when he talks about having a definite aim or purpose. I think it's super important, and I always do this with clients, is to establish why is money important to you? Because it's important to me for a different reason than it's important to you, Sean. If I was giving anyone advice after all my years, I think I would want them to focus on the why behind the accumulation of money or the pursuit of money or the desire of money. Because I think that's going to keep it its most pure and honest and authentic for you. 
and, and allow you to not overreach or strive in areas where you should not when it comes to money. Thank you. I like that overreach or strive in areas you don't want to. Well, Dominique, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely, man. For people listening, tell them about Assess, Address, and Adjust, a practical guide to becoming unstuck and achieving your goals and where people can find you on the internet. Yes. So the best place right now in Partner Desk, because we're doing a little bit of construction on the site, but Dom Henderson, S-R, D-O-M-H-E-N-D-E-R-S-O-N-S-R.com is where you can find all things Dominique, whether you're looking for speaking or you're trying to get into the financial services industry or you're looking for a financial planner or you want to partake in the book that we just got through talking about, all that's going to be on that website. Perfect. Oh, and we didn't get to jumpstart. Such an interesting thing. Maybe a quick little jumpstart. What is jumpstart if people are interested in that? Jumpstart is all about helping Dominique in his mission to help serve more people and change more family trees. So I'll, I'll, I'll say this really quick quote. I think it was Tyler Perry that said, when you have achieved a level of success or arrived at success, it's important that you hold the door open for others. And since I know I'm finite and I'm never going to be able to serve all the people that need financial planning or financial advice, I started to share what I do with those that are trying to come into the industry. More on the professional development side, not really trying to teach you how to pass the 65 or the CFP per se, but really trying to give you the tools that have been pretty crucial to my success when dealing with people along the lines of financial advice. And so that's what Jumpstart is all about. And matter of fact, you can find about find out about Jumpstart by going to jumpstartcoachinglab.com or you can just go to domhendersonsr.com and there'll be some links to get you to Jumpstart there also. Perfect. And we'll, we'll link those in the show notes. And um, yeah, something that we had talked about before, I love how you talk about as an advisor, you get to sit in the seat to help change family trees. So absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you spending your finite time with our audience. Great to be here. Such a privilege. Thanks again, Sean. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I write a freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life. It's just the wind in the sail.